Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the young people who are choosing to serve you and are singing songs of praise to you. And we do pray you will bless them and draw them to yourself and that this will be a time of, of not just emotional enjoyment, but a time of real commitment on their part. Father, throughout this Sunday school this morning, we pray your blessing. We pray for your strength and your empowerment. We thank you for your presence here, and we just pray that you will guide us now according to your divine plan and give us insight and understanding that will help us this day to glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to read again from 1 Samuel chapter 9, the first 10 verses, and then Dr. Walmark has a little story that sort of fits into this passage. So let me read it to you again this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zerar, the son of Bacharath, the son of Aphiah, the son of Benjamin, a mighty man of valor. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man, and there was not a more handsome man than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, Take now with you one of the servants, and arise and go search for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, and passed through the land of Shalashah, but they did not find them. Then they passed through the land of Sha'alim, but they, did, they were not there. Then he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they could not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us return, lest my father cease to be concerned about the donkeys and become anxious for us. And he said to him, Behold, now there is a man of God in this city, and the man is held in honor. All that he says surely comes true. Now therefore, let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us about our journey on which we have set out. And Saul said to his servant, Behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread is gone from our sack, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered Saul and said, Behold, I have in my hand a fourth of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God, and he will tell us of our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to, see, to inquire of God, he used to say, Come, let us go to the seer. For he who is called a prophet now was formerly called a seer. And then Saul said to a servant, Well then, come let us go. So they went up to the city where the man of God was. In this particular passage of scripture, we're introduced to a man, of course, that we're going to know for a considerable number of chapters in the uh, book of 1 Samuel, Saul. And we're, we're given a little bit of his lineage here, and I mentioned last time that uh, basically his lineage is undistinguished. None of those people is mentioned again except, of course, Saul himself and his father Kish, but none of the ancestors are mentioned anywhere else except in this passage of scripture. And as we saw, the story is begun with the fact that Kish has lost some of his donkeys. We're not told how many. And he told Saul, or asked Saul, to take one of the servants and go in search for these. And as we read in the passage, they traveled to various places there. And it was all fairly close by to these different regions, Shalashah and uh, so forth. What is interesting is that, as best we can tell, all of those places were located in southern Ephraim and probably eastern Benjamin. So they didn't travel all that many miles, at least as the crow fly. They kind of looped around in a circle. 
you'll notice when it says in the passage of Scripture, the land of Shalashah and the land of Sha'alim, we have to understand that not as we would today. We would say, well, I'm going to the land of Egypt, by which we mean a country, a very large place. The land of Shalashah simply means the, the lands immediately around the little town of Shalashah. And, and so he didn't travel all that far. It was a fruitless search. In, in all of the seeking, they found none of the donkeys. They had wandered and wandered, and yet none of the donkeys had been found. And of course, God was in this. God was not allowing the donkeys to be found because as we read in the passage, God had a plan. One of the things we do find in the fifth verse of this chapter is one of the good attributes of the man Saul. After they had searched for the donkeys for these several days and had not found them, Saul, we're told in the passage, just turned to his servant and said, we better return home. Why had they better return home? home? Because, he said, my father is going to be anxious about us. He is going to be worried about us. And obviously, his concern about us exceeds his concern about the donkeys. And therefore, the continued search for the donkeys, particularly since it's fruitless, if it generates anxiety in my father, it is not worth the effort. So obviously, Saul cared about his father, which was, of course, a good thing. I think as we look at this passage, we, we surmise some interesting things from this. I believe that Saul was probably younger than his servant, maybe considerably younger. We, we don't really know. Because what we find here is that Saul wasn't very appreciative of the significance of the man Samuel, or at least it seems to come out in this particular passage. He didn't even seem himself to consider Samuel as someone they ought to consult. Or maybe he didn't even know they were near Ramah or never even thought of Samuel and Ramah being associated together. But the servant in this passage prevents or presents a very convincing argument. He says to Saul, now, now think about this, Saul is the son of a fairly wealthy and powerful person who lives in Benjamin, not really very far from Ramah. The servant says, that Samuel was a man of God who was held in honor, who was a true prophet. And then he says, perhaps he can give us some wise counsel. The persistence and the wisdom of the servant seems to overshadow Saul here. You, know, you think about this. It's the servant who is giving to Saul wisdom. And, and Saul doesn't even think about this, apparently, before the uh, servant shares this with him. So is this a glimpse just a little early glimpse of the folly of choosing someone who looks like a king rather than somebody who has the ability to be a king. And Larry was talking to me after class last time, and, and I think correctly so. Why did Saul appear to be so ignorant concerning Samuel? I mean, Samuel had been shofat in the land for many years. The scripture tells us that his word was known to always come true. And he didn't live far from, from where Saul grew up. Why was Saul so ignorant of Samuel? Is it a testimony to the fact that Saul and maybe his whole family, Kish and, and the whole family, were totally oriented towards their own lives, uh, let, let what we would say today, materialistic and not even concerned about spiritual things? I, I, I have a hard time believing he had not heard of Samuel, but that he never even thought about Samuel as a possibility. Well, I think that's not terribly unlike many of us. Sometimes we get in a situation and the last thing we think about is to pray to God about how to solve this problem. 
We try to do it all ourselves and, and try to work our way through, and then finally we think, well, you know, maybe God would help me here. <laughs> I suppose that's a little bit the way Saul was thinking, if he was thinking at all. It was not a law given in Scripture that if you went to seek advice from the prophet that you had to bring a gift, but apparently it was a generally accepted practice that if you want to seek counsel from the prophet, you bring to the prophet a gift. Now, the gift could be pretty mundane because Saul says, well, our bread is all gone, you know, as if, well, we'll give him a little leftover bread, and that would be good enough for the prophet. It reminds me of people who feel that missionaries, as long as they get something, it doesn't matter the quality of what they get. You know, I'll give them my coat that's 20 years old, may have a few moth holes in it, but good enough for a missionary. I don't know if that was Saul's attitude or not, but he implied that they couldn't go to see Samuel because they didn't have a gift to bring to Samuel. But the servant was persistent. This is the man we should go see. He will help us with our search. And I do have a gift. I have a quarter of a shekel of silver left in my bag. Do not view that as a coin. Coins were not invented for another 400 years. But gold and silver had been used for currency for a long time in the ancient Near East. In fact, gold has been a commodity that has been sought after by human beings for at least 6,000 years. And not just for ornamentation, also to use for much of that time at least as a medium of exchange. So what was he carrying? Well, he may have been carrying the, uh, the shekels, the, the silver in granular form, or probably in small little ingots, which was a common way of uh, transferring precious metal in those days. A quarter of a shekel of silver wasn't much money, really. But the servant felt it would be enough for the information that they required. Verse 9 in this passage is unique in the Old Testament. It's a parenthetical statement. It's not a parenthetical statement that's parenthetical because somebody added it later. It's a parenthetical statement within the text itself. It tells of a semantic change. There is no change in this passage having to do with God's calling or God's empowerment. It's just a change in words used to describe the person to which they were going. We read in this passage that in Saul's day, the word seer, which is actually the translation of, in different places of two different Hebrew words, apparently had been replaced by the word prophet, nabi in everyday language, and that's an important point to, to make. In everyday language, that was apparently the change. So if Samuel or, or Saul was talking to his servant, they would be referring to the man as Nabi rather than by one of the terms used for, for seer. However, this is a very interesting point relative to this. In Scripture, the two words that are translated in one place or another as seer are never used in Scripture before this verse. And they will now be used 30 times in the remaining parts of the Old Testament in later passages of Scripture. Whereas the word nabi appears in Genesis and appears hundreds of times all the way through the entire Old Testament. So what we're looking at here, I think, is a statement that refers only to popular idiom not to scriptural idiom, because in the scripture, the term nabi is used far more times than the word seer, and long before the word seer appears in the Old Testament. What is important, though, I think, 
is that a seer was a person of spiritual vision, a one, one who could see, could see into the spiritual realm, someone to whom God came and gave uh, a vision of, of things to come or of particularly uh, the truth behind a particular situation. Whereas a prophet, the word nabi, means specifically a spokesman for God. So a seer is a man of vision, spiritual vision. A prophet is a man who is a spokesman for God. But obviously you can't be a spokesman for God if you don't have spiritual vision. And if you receive spiritual vision, you're supposed to tell it to others so you become a spokesman for God. So in reality, seer and nabi are synonymous terms functionally. And we see that clearly, I think. Let me read a passage of Scripture. And of course, this passage was written several hundred years later in Isaiah chapter 30. A really, really sad passage of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 30, beginning at verse 9. For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, you must not see visions, and to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. And notice the second half of verse 11. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. You remember Samuel's predecessor, Eli, and when his daughter-in-law was dying, giving birth to a son, she named the son Ichabod. The glory of the Lord hath departed. The movies full of illusion. Uh, everything to make us feel good and nothing to allow us to think of reality. It reminds me of, of people who cannot be alone and quiet. They've always got to have noise. People who can't ever sit still without music playing. Something always going along on because they are afraid to stop and think. Because if they stop and think, suddenly the reality of life might hit them and they want to live an illusion. They don't want to be, they, they don't want to hear of uh, anything that might call them up into question about the life that they're living. And we have a whole society that's living that way. A whole society that's living that way. In the 10th verse of 1 Samuel 9, we read that Samuel, Saul acknowledged the wise counsel of his servant and ratified his plan and so they went up the hill to Ramah that they might have an, audi an audience with Samuel. Uh, what we're going to discover from this passage and from the next passage is, is something about the character of God. God is using a servant here, a person who is an inferior in status, economically and socially, to this man Saul. A and yet it is the servant that brings the wise counsel. It's the servant whose idea is accepted by Saul and ratified by Saul and followed by Saul. And later on, as we get into the next passage, we're going to discover that the servant also sits alongside Saul in the place of honor at the time of Saul's acknowledgement by at least the small group that were at the sacrifice as to his preferment in Israel. We know from Scripture that uh, with God, there is no preferment of persons. Uh, we're all equal in God's eyes. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free or male nor female in God's eyes. And I think it's important that we remember that. Because in our society where, and most of the societies of the world where social standing is everything, we need to break free from that ourselves. In the New Testament, we're told about where you give the, the wealthy person the place of honor and you tell the poor person, well, go over, sit here on my, at, a, at my footstool. And this is, this is wrong in God's eyes. 
And it's hard for us to break free from that, but we must. And at least this is some credit to Saul that he pays attention uh, to his servant. Let's read on, beginning at verse 11 of uh, chapter 9. And they went up the slope to the city. They found young women going out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? And they answered them and said, He is. See, he is ahead of you. Hurry now, for he has come to the city today, for the people have a sacrifice on the high place today. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now therefore go up, for you will find him at once. So they went up to the city, and as they came into the city, behold, Samuel was coming out toward them to go up to the high place. Now a day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel, saying, About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel, and he shall deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Behold the man of whom I spoke to you. This one shall rule over my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate, and he said, Please tell me where the seer's house is. That tells us also something about Saul. And Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today. And in the morning I will let you go, and will tell you all that is on your mind. And as for your donkeys, which were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's household? And Saul answered and said, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, my family the least of all the families in the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you, do you speak to me in this way? We have read in this passage about a divine encounter. God had planned it as a divine encounter from the very beginning. Those donkeys were not lost by accident. They were lost on purpose. God lost them, if you will. God sent them off uh, wandering away uh, so that Saul would have to seek these donkeys. Samuel could easily have been out traveling. Samuel could have been on his circuit at that time. How much of the year did he spend going to Gilgal and, and you know, and Mizpah and Bethel? We, we don't know. But he had this circuit, and he probably traveled it more than once a year doing his Shofat thing. He could easily have been gone during the time that Saul was searching for the donkeys. Instead, he was at home in Ramah. And he had just been seen by the young women at the well that Saul encountered and of whom he made his inquiry. Some would say it's coincidence. I don't think so. I think this is divine appointment. I think the sooner we get to the place where we recognize that in the lives of God's children, there virtually is no such thing as coincidence. Our lives are divinely guided, divinely appointed. God has a plan and God has a purpose. And God expects us to, to radiate the reality of who He is in all of our encounters throughout each day, no matter what the stress level may be on us. Now, obviously, that's something we only learn over a long period of time, of course, how to shine forth with the glory of the Lord even when the pressure is on us. 
They arrived just before a sacrifice was to be made, just before a sacrificial meal was to be held. And again, remember, we're at Ramah. Uh, we're not at Mizpah. We're not at Bethel. We're not at Shiloh. We're at Ramah. The Ark of the Covenant is not here at Ramah. Let me go back into the seventh chapter of Samuel and read a few verses at the end of the seventh chapter of 1 Samuel, verse 15 through 17, where we read now, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he used to go annually on circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all, th all these places. Then he return his return was to Ramah, for his house was there, and there he judged Israel, and he built an altar there to the Lord. So outside of the city of Ramah, on the adjacent hill, was an altar to the Lord that had been constructed under the orders of Samuel. And Samuel made sacrifice there. And again, remember, we, we discovered that this happened again because there was no longer a place where the ark was, was set up for the purpose of being the focus of the worship of Yahweh. So what Israel had done is gone back to the period before the establishment of the ark at Shiloh. And they worshiped at multiple places, or at least at this place, uh, outside of the nearness to the Ark of the Covenant. There was urgency in the voices of the young women as Saul encountered them. Oh, well, hurry, hurry, he's just up ahead. He just went inside side the city. If you, if you move quickly, you'll be able to catch up with him. Now, was that urgency there simply because they were trying to be helpful, or, or did God uh, kind of uh, give them an unknown urgency, unknown to them anyway, to move Saul along? Actually, Saul encountered Samuel coming out of the gate of the city of Ramah because he was headed towards the hill where the altar was, because he was going to begin the sacrifice and make the blessing on the sacrifice. In verses 15 and 16 of this passage in, in 1 Samuel 9, we have insight in what, as to what is the real meaning of the word seer. What does the word seer mean? The scripture tells us that 24 hours before this event, God had given to Samuel a vision. And in that vision, he told Samuel, you are going to encounter the man that I have chosen to be the prince of Israel tomorrow about this time. 24 hours later, you are going to encounter this man. In that vision, God told him, I am bringing the man to you. I'm bringing him here to Ramah. And you are to anoint him as prince. Notice, the word is prince. It is not king. It is not melek. It's the word that means leader or ruler. And so the word king is not yet being used relative to Saul at this particular point in time. Now, God knew the heart of Samuel. And Samuel was real reticent about this whole thing because Samuel, even though God had said to him before when, when Israel asked for a king, he says, it isn't really you, Samuel, there they're rejecting. It's me that they're rejecting from being king over them. I think Samuel still had a hurt point in there, though. He still had a, a feeling like, this is just not right. This isn't what ought to be happening. And so to give Samuel a little bit of enthusiasm about this encounter and about what he was supposed to do, God explained that he'd heard the cry of my people Israel, and I have sent this man to deliver them from the Philistines. And Samuel, of course, could understand that that was a very important thing to do. Thus, 
as Samuel was exiting the city of Ramah through the city gate, knowing that it was about 24 hours since God had said in the next 24, uh, tomorrow about this time, you will encounter the man that I have chosen. He, I think he was alert to hear the voice of God now. He was thinking, God is, is going to speak to me because there may be other strangers than just the one, and how do I know which one it is? So obviously I've got to be alert to the voice of God. And he was alert to the possibility of any strangers walking around. Now, we need to put ourselves into Israel at that time. Strangers were unusual. The towns and villages of Israel were inhabited by the native peoples of that area, and uh, it wasn't like we are today. We just hop in our car and go visit Aunt Sally 200 miles away at a drop of a hat. Uh, in, in those days, you didn't go visit Aunt Sally <laughs> unless there was a special occasion or a special need because you had obligations that you had to take care of and there was no quick means of transportation. You walked everywhere you went and therefore travel was uh, obviously a difficult thing. And so strangers were unusual. So Samuel would spot a stranger right away as he uh, walked through the gate. I think he anticipated, who is it that God has selected? What will he be like? I mean, he was human. How could he help but think those kinds of thoughts? Tomorrow at this time, I'm going to see the man God has chosen. I, I sh I'm sure, sure he conjured up visions. Uh, with it. And I'm not talking about spiritually here now. I'm talking about in his own imagination. He brought up visions of what this man might be look like or what, what he might look like or what he ought to look like anyway. Uh, but I think at the same time he was dogged by the foreboding that tomorrow I'm going to have to or, or soon I'm going to have to anoint a person that God doesn't really want to, Israel to have but he's willing to allow Israel to have. If Samuel had any thoughts about Saul when he first saw him, or even after God said, this is the man, he didn't record them. He didn't say what he thought about the man Saul. But again, Samuel was human. And I think he was favorably, favorably impressed by Saul. First impressions, here's this man, most handsome man in all Israel and taller by a, by a head than anybody else in the whole country. How could you help but be impressed? Saul had a regal bearing about him. He was still relatively young. If Israel had to have a king, I think even Samuel thought he ought to at least look like a king. Seeing Saul coming and hearing in his heart God's confirmation that this is the man that I have chosen, I think Samuel stopped in the gateway to watch Saul walk towards him, to size him up, if you will, to look him over and get a sense of who this man might be, at least in his physical presence. What does it tell us about Saul when Saul walks up to Samuel and says, can you tell me where the house of the prophet Samuel is? <laughs> Obviously, he had no idea what Samuel looked like. Didn't even know what a prophet should look like. Did Samuel look like a prophet? Uh, well, I don't know. He wasn't a young man anymore. <clears throat> if you're a prophet, do you have a, a, a bit of a prophetic aura about you? <laughs> do your eyes blaze a little? <laughs> Well, if you're in Hollywood, they do. <laughs> I don't know. But I, I think all of you, if you've walked with the Lord very long, have developed a little bit of a sense of spiritual discernment, maybe a lot of sense of spiritual discernment, depending on the individual, I suppose. 
And it doesn't take a very long encounter with somebody before you're already getting a sense of where this person is in, in their spirituality, whether there's any life there, any real spiritual life uh, there. Um, Saul <laughs> is a total dud. You know. He hasn't got a clue that he's talking to this man of God who's in constant communion with the God of the universe. Uh, he doesn't know that, that this is the person who's the Shaphat of Israel, who is the high priest of Israel, and who is a man whose words never are false, at least his prophetic words, as God anointed them. Well, at least Saul could be credited with asking for directions. <laughs> After introducing himself as the seer, notice how Samuel functioned. No pleasantries exchanged here. How's your family? Um, what are you here for? None of that kind of stuff. He says, I'm Samuel the seer whom you're looking for. And immediately he commanded him or maybe invited him to participate in the sacrifice that was about to take place immediately up on the nearby hill. Come with me right now. Let's go. Right off the bat, Samuel makes it clear to Saul that the Lord's business takes precedence. The Lord's business is first. Whatever your needs are, whatever your problems are, they're secondary to the Lord's business at this specific moment. They must, God's work must be taken care of first in this particular instance. To ease Saul's mind, however, because Saul was probably going, what, you know, what's going on here? I, I don't even know this man. He's already telling me what to do and where to go. And, um, but to help him understand that God had arranged this meeting for a far greater purpose than finding a bunch of wandering donkeys. Samuel makes two profound statements here. First of all, he says that the donkeys that have been lost for three days have been found. What is so significant about that? Well, Saul hadn't even had a moment to even tell him what he wanted, why he was looking for Samuel. So here is Samuel prophesying to Saul, saying, you're looking for, three, uh, for donkeys and they've been lost for three days. How did he know that? This is a demonstration of the reality of his seership, if you will. Secondly, he says to Saul, and you are to be exalted in Israel. Well, you've all heard about the one-two punch. Well, Saul just received it. It's a wonder Saul, you know, it, it would have been amazing if Saul didn't do whatever Samuel said, told him to do. He's like, uh, okay, lead me to the, <laughs> lead me where you want me to go. I mean, he was totally flabbergasted. This man has just told me what I wanted and has told me how long I've been seeking the donkey and I haven't told him a word. And now he's telling me I am going to be preferred in Israel. Now the last half of verse 20 uh, is a little bit enigmatic to us. The first half of the verse reads, as for your donkeys which were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them for they have been found. And then he says, and for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's household? Now, if somebody said that to me, I'd, I wouldn't have a clue what he was talking about. You know, what are you saying? Why are you speaking riddles to me here? But I think we understand that Saul understood at least something of what Samuel was saying because of Saul's response. He says, why are you saying this to me since my tribe is the least in all of Israel and I am of the least family in the least tribe. How can you be saying this to me? 
Jonathan. Was what a quote? It's a quotation, yes. Is that what you're saying? Possibly, except for I'm not too sure what made much sense to Saul. <laughs> he doesn't. He doesn't seem to be a man of great clue, at uh, least so far. And of course, as you read more into his career as king, it seems to be something that prevails in his life. I don't know. It, it's hard to tell. That's that's a possibility. That the way it's phrased in Hebrew is probably a lot more to the point than it seems to be to us here as we read this particular passage. And it's also possible, of course, that we don't have everything that Samuel said. He may not have written down everything that was in part of the conversation. So that's a good point. Does this sound like anybody you've heard before? You remember in our study of Joshua and Gideon? The angel of the Lord came down to Gideon and says, Mighty man of valor, God has chosen you to be Shophat. And uh, Gideon, who's down in a wine press trying to thrash out some grain hiding, see if there are any enemies around. <laughs> Mighty man of valor. You know, it didn't sound like a very uh, accurate uh, statement to him at that particular time. But his response was, I'm not qualified to be Shophat because my family is the least in Manasseh and I am the youngest in my family, the youngest son. And of course, again, what we're talking about here is the concept of social preferment. You look down through the history of the world, and except in the case of uh, a coup, a revolution, almost always the next ruler, if he doesn't come from the same family the previous ruler came from, came from another mighty aristocratic family. And I don't care if you're talking about China or Japan or Europe or wherever you are, this is almost always the case. The person who becomes ruler, unless he has overthrown the government by military power, almost always is a person of high standing in the society before he or she is named to be ruler of the land. And so to Saul, it didn't make sense. Why would I be preferred when my, clan, my, my, uh, my tribe is so small and is so weak and has such a little piece of land and, and my family is, is, is nobody? In, in all of Israel. So he was thinking as people would normally think at that particular time. But there is one encouraging sign here, and I think I'll leave you with that, and that is Saul's apparent humility, which is expressed in making this statement. Who am I that I should be preferred in Israel? Which seems to indicate that maybe, maybe, his height and good looks had not yet gotten into his head. Unfortunately, that humility would one day, and not too far in the future, turn into inordinate pride, even to the place at which he would dare to violate the word of the seer and to disobey God and bring havoc on his own house and bring an end ultimately to his own reign. Next week, we'll um, look at what God did to prefer Saul, what the process was, and the launching of the monarchy.